Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What is going on, everybody? Jimmy to my right. We have Ruben across the table from his frequent guest. Mm-hmm. And joining us via the modern marvel of electricity and other things I don't understand, <laughs> Nephi Cole from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Now, the catalyst for this podcast was I was recently, uh, maybe not asked to, I was given the opportunity, we all were, to voice our opinions on on a survey which actually, you know what, uh, thank you DNR for, uh, you know, extending the opportunity for us to, you know, voice our opinions. But there was a, a series of questions on there. There was a lot of questions. They actually, the entire survey took me almost an hour. There's definitely too. It did, yeah, it's um, a long survey. You know, and, and they do a good job. They provide kind of some, some, some background and a little bit of framing for each of their questions, uh, you know, essentially re- revolving around say oftentimes potential modifications to, to game and fish regulations. That, that's going to be somewhat accurate. But a, a section of those... Did you vote for the experimental badger season? Yeah. Same. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. I would love to do that anyway. And, and spring bear. And spring bear and uh, broadening some of our uh, underwater spearing regulations as well because yep. I have intentions of doing that in the state Oh, it's also. a great time. Heck yeah. So uh, super, super stoked on that. But literally the first questions, sorry to bring you off topic. So the first questions revolved around various uh, instances where you, I guess, you know, should or shouldn't be able to use non-toxic shot. Or, excuse me. Or you should be required, potentially, to use, quote, non-toxic. Yes, Jim, you said that much better. So I'll I'll give you the first question. Do you support requiring the use of non-toxic shot on all state-owned or managed properties, except for department-designated shooting ranges, right? So all these questions, and maybe we'll go through all of them. But this series of questions was kind of the catalyst for this podcast today with Nephi. We'll have him introduce himself here in a minute. But, you know, it kind of raised some questions for me. Like, number one, I probably need to educate myself better on this topic, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, do the research, look at the research that has been done, formulate, you know, kind of, I guess, an educated, you know, opinion on this topic. And then also, you know, is calling lead or non-lead options, is the use of the terminology non-toxic, is that an accurate way to talk about it? And even in these questions, and again, like, this has been an education process for me, but is that even a, almost a, a leading way? Yeah. You know, are, yeah. are you kind of leading somebody who may not be educated or, or super, not educated, but like super informed about everything that revolves around this topic? It, you know, I, hear I, you. I, I guess for me personally, right, if I had zero knowledge and maybe I'll even use like a different example, but if somebody said, well, Mark, you can drink this non-toxic glass of water or this toxic glass of water, <laughs> I know which one I'm going to pick. And maybe, the, and this is it's a super extreme example, and maybe it doesn't exactly have parallels. It probably doesn't, but anyway, that's no, my I know, thinking. I know what you mean, because when, when I first read the questions, I remember seeing, do you support requiring the use of non-toxic ammo in XYZ? And then it, a couple questions change out the XYZ at the end. 
And like you said, if you're not super up to snuff, you don't know exactly how all that stuff breaks down. You'd see it and you think, well, why wouldn't I? You know, toxic, non-toxic. I mean, it just makes sense. So Nephi, this is where you come in because you've yeah, it you seems sent pretty us, uh, cut and a lot dry of, when you say it like that, doesn't it? Like somebody's like, oh yeah, toxic versus non-toxic. Could you rather be in a toxic conversation or a non-toxic conversation? It's yeah, like, anything well, toxic um, versus non. Right. I'd rather take the non-toxic. Yeah. Jim, you know, you know I hate conflict. You do. Yes, you don't want to be in any toxic conversation. No, not at all. Yeah. And then the question has to be then, okay, well, what's that threshold? How do you define that? And I think that that's one of the, I mean, that's part of the reason that, you know, people get confused about this issue is because, um, you know, when you phrase it like that, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. And the, the reality is if you then change it and say, well, what we're actually talking about is lead shot or non-lead shot or a traditional core, um, copper core bullet versus all copper bullet, you know, things like that, that kind of time, it changes the conversation, but it also requires that you have additional information and it requires education that is tough to do because it's a complex issue. Yeah. I mean, the more I dove into it, the more I discovered that, yeah, it is a complex issue, you know, and you can look at, you know, different studies, you know, that maybe skew one way or the other. And I think that's, you know, where it comes down to definitely probably reading as much as you can or talking with folks like you and getting as much information as possible to kind of make that, you know, informed decision or formulate at least what to you is like a right opinion surrounding the, the topic. So the idea of quote toxic ammunition, and I, I guess that's kind of the funny thing too, because when you call, when you call ammunition that isn't, or doesn't have lead in it, and I, I'm pretty sure all we're talking, the main thing we're talking about is lead versus stuff that doesn't have lead in it. Right. Yeah. There's that's not absolutely like, right. there's not so you're other talking things. About- you're talking, we call it, we prefer in the industry, we say traditional ammunition. So that's, because, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Cause if you yeah. say the other kind is non-toxic, that the only leftover name for the other kind is toxic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much that you can unpack on this, but you know, to give you a little bit of background, people have been using the first monolithic bullets. This might, might blow your mind. The first monolithic bullets that people used effectively were actually made of lead, right? Mm-hmm. It's made of one, some six monolithic and, but lead's been the go-to material for bullets for, I don't know, man, it's over. I, I mean, it's over, it's well over 500 years. It's well over half a century. And I, I want, I haven't got my notes in front of me from, I've talked about this before, but uh, it's a long, long time. And the reason is it, lead is a very uh, lead's very efficient in bullets. It's heavy. It has a really high specific density, right? Which means when you compare it to the density of water, lead is very heavy for its size. And so that means that you, when you put a propellant behind it, like gunpowder, you can drive it through a barrel. You can drive it at speed, and it's going to maintain its energy longer. And then when it hits something, it's going to dissipate that energy. Uh, it's going to dissipate more energy because, you know, law of conservation of energy comes into play, you know, physics come into play. The other thing that's nice about lead and why it's been popular for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is because it's softer than steel. And so as we all know, when we make guns out of, you know, we make them out of steel. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to decide what you're going to push with a high explosive down the barrel of a gun, it helps to find something. You have to have something that's softer than what you're than than the implement that's softer than the gun, or else you destroy the gun. And so lead, of course, is soft enough that you can it, that it works in you know all kinds of steel. It's going to be malleable enough that it can be slightly larger, right? And this is why you know they're, they're, the bullets are you know when you get a 22 bullet, what do they say, 223, and when you actually go buy it in the store and you mic it, 
it may be a little bigger. It's because that bullet, in order to get good pressure behind it, it's going to squish a little bit when it hits those riflings. That's why you get the deformation on the bullet. And then that's going to that's gonna allow you to keep the pressure behind the bullet and then drive the bullet out. So there is a certain give and take when you're identifying materials that you can use for a bullet. And it just so happens that lead meets most of the criteria that you want uh, for a substance that you can, you know, that makes a great bullet. And that's why it's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's why it's going to continue to be used because it's effective. So when we're talking about uh, a lot of this is revolved around hunting, but is it also, are these questions also getting at then recreational shooters too? So, cause I know when you look at, when you look at the types of ammunition out there, I mean, there's just, just saying I shoot six, five Creedmoor, I shoot 308 isn't necessarily even enough because there's different kinds of six, five Creedmoor. There's different kinds of 308 that you would use. Yeah. One would be a terrible choice or, or just not a very good choice. If you were out hunting, one wouldn't be the best choice if you were trying to do precision rifle is there is yeah. there one specific uh, kind that's more in the uh, in in question here that tends to have more lead than others? Are there are kinds that don't have any lead in them? Well, I think so. Would... If you go across, I mean, it's an interesting question. And so, if, so I failed to give background. So let me tell everybody a little bit about myself and what I do. So I'm the director of government relations and state affairs for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. We are the Firearms Trade Association of America. So anybody that makes, moves, or sells a firearm, a component, and many accessories attached to firearms, that's our membership. So for example, Vortex is a member of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, as is Winchester, as is Cabela's and Shields and all these other places. So basically anybody that makes, moves, or sells a firearm or a related component, those are the people that we kind of, that's our membership. It's about 12,000 members. We own a show called Shot Show that a lot of people are aware of. And so that show, you know, most people have never heard of us but they've heard of the SHOT Show. And so um, we're involved with all the manufacturers and we try and pr provide the best science. We're affiliated with SAMI. Um, so if we hear SAMI specs on ammunition, they're in our basement. And so that's a group that we work with very regularly to make sure that all of our manufacturers are producing arms and ammunition that meet SAMI specifications. And so those SAMI specifications, that's what keeps ammunition safe. It's what makes it effective. It's what makes sure that when you buy a 6.5 Creedmoor off of the shelf, as long as you don't do custom reaming, that when you buy a bullet that says 6.5 Creedmoor and you put it in your 6.5 rifle and you pull the trigger, that the gun doesn't explode. It's because everything falls under those specifications, that, that the, those SAMI specifications. And I tell you all that because that plays into these, this bullet selection, this bullet choice. So... There are a variety of different types of bullets out there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pigeonhole them into two kinds that we'll talk about. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of these questions were about shotgun ammunition. That needs to come into play too. Mm -hmm. So first, rifle bullets. We're going to classify them in two types. We're going to classify them into monolithic bullets, and we're going to classify them in traditional cup and core bullets. So a cup and core bullet is the number one, you know, well over... 90% of the market. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, by, by a large margin, cup and core is what you buy when you go to the store. So a cup and core bullet is made by taking a, 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 an alloy, typically a copper bronze alloy, and giving it some shape, shape of your bullet, and then you fill the interior of it with lead. And of course, it's easy to do that, right? Because you can melt lead pretty easily, and it's very malleable, and you can fill the inside of your bullet with it. And so your bullets may be, they may be full metal jacket. They may be ballistic tip. They may be hollow point match, all these different things, but they're all basically the same thing. They're a, a jacket around a lead core 
And then with something, sometimes there's something on the end that helps initiate expansion, right? Whether it's a design, whether it's lead hanging out the end, like a, you know, Sierra Game King, you got a little bit of lead on the end that helps initiate expansion, or whether it's a Hornady uh, ELDX that has the little tip that, you know, that's uh, the heat shield tip that initiates expansion. So mm-hmm. well, all those things do is they, they try and make it so that when the, the projectile hits something, um, if you need to have an expanding projectile, right? And that's not all cup and core bullets, but most hunting projectiles, are they're all expanding projectiles. It aids in expansion. Cup and core bullets, let's put those on the left-hand side. On the opposite side, we've got monolithics. So monolithic bullets just means that they're made out of one material. And so that one material could be a, it's typically also an alloy. So it's typically copper and something else. And the something else that's involved in there is what gives that bullet different properties in terms of how malleable it is, in terms of what, you know, how much, how hard it is in turn, you know, how it reacts and things like that. So those monolithic bullets, originally when you're buying a monolithic, it was straight up. I mean, it's just a, a hard piece of metal and there are monolithic lead bullets too. If you ever use a hard cast bullet for bears or something like that in a handgun, monolithic lead it's just hard cast it's got something in to make the lead harder so it doesn't deform it would be like a high antimony lead or a high antimony lead yeah yes Hmm. so over the last 20 years you've seen a huge resurgence in monolithic bolts i say resurgence because initially bullets were all monolithic so initially for the first you know for hundreds and hundreds of years they were monolithic primarily lead and then you had a guy, uh, interestingly enough, by the name of Green, I think was the first one who started using, you know, putting other components in the bullet to make it, uh, and this was the 1800s, to make it, to, to make it uh, perform differently. Then you start to see advances in technology where people figured out that this, you know, that they needed to have a jacketed bullet. And it's about the time actually that you had Mausers, about bolt action guns and things like that, high pressure cartridges, smokeless powder. People started to kind of look into this jacketed bullet technology. And the jacketed bullet technologies where you have now the cup and core bullets that came in and they dominated the early part of the 20th century, you know, clear up until, you know, the late, you know, the 1970s, 80s. I mean, the, primarily that was your bullets was like, we're going to be these traditional bullets. So whether you were shooting the NIC traditional cup and core, so whether you were shooting a nozzle partition or whether you were shooting a Sierra Game King or, uh, you know, something like that, all these bullets are these tr- traditional cup and core bullets. And, uh, you know, so whether you're shooting a Weatherby Mag or Winchester or target shooting or whatever, you're using the cup and core bullet. Well, monolithics made a, they made a comeback. People started using copper solids, brass solids, and they, I don't know that they ever fell out of favor with some dangerous game hunting in Africa, but different materials and and the way that a monolithic bullet works, some people figured out that, hey, you know, if you want a bullet that's really tough, that doesn't expand, that doesn't come apart, these monolithic bullets work really well. Enter uh, new changes in monolithic bullets and some great technologies by companies like Barnes Mm -hmm. that started to make really good monolithic bullets and incorporate new technologies into monolithic bullets. So they took those into the next, you know, up a level. Yeah, the Barnes, like the TAC-TX and then the Hornady GMX are two really phenomenal bullets. Yep, the Barnes LRX and and, and and they've done a lot. If you look at the design of those, what they've done is, you know, you have a, a void in the middle of those. And then they design those bullets to open better than a traditional monolithic. So you could get some expansion out of a monolithic bullet. Hmm. And so they really caught on. And there are some 
some pluses to using monolithics. And then there are some, you know, there's some trade-offs when you trade off between these two. And so to explain that briefly, some of the things that lead does well, monolithics don't do really well. And so it's important that you understand what bullet, you know, you want to use for what purpose. If you want a bullet that expands, devastating expansion, monolithic might not be the right choice for you. And here's why. When you design a monolithic bullet, monolithic bullets typically, I just typically, they work best when driven at higher velocities and when you are planning on breaking an animal down. And the reason I say that is because the way that they're designed, if you look at you know what somebody's going to say, it's like, hey, almost 100% weight retention on a bullet, right? You shoot a big animal with a monolithic bullet, the sales pitch for that bullet, what people are going to want to see is when that bullet comes out the other side of that animal, bullet's intact. And if that's the way you're planning to hunt, it's a fantastic choice. Um, if you're hunting dangerous game, fantastic choice, large game, fantastic choice. There's a lot of reasons that monolithic bullets are very, very good for different uses. What you're not going to get with a monolithic bullet is if you were shooting, um, again, let's now let's use a, a burger. If you're using a burger bullet, like a hybrid uh, hunter, or again, a certain you know Sierra Game King or something like that, you're going to get a bullet that by design, that bullet is meant to expand violently, right? You're probably not ever going to find, you're not going to get a 90% weight retention in a burger hybrid because the bullet is not designed to do that. The bullet is designed to enter the vital areas of the animal and to deposit all of its energy right there. And that's how those bullets are designed. That's a different design principle than the monolithic. And so both function, both are phenomenal bullets, both have areas where they work better and, and don't work as well. Some of the advantages of traditional bullets, like, for example, a burger again, to really get a monolithic, a monolithic to perform, it pays to know the performance envelope. You mentioned 6.5 Creedmoor. So I'd ask with your 6.5 Creedmoor, how well do you know your ballistics? Moderately okay-ish. Yeah. So for a monolithic bullet to really perform well, you, you don't want it to drop below 2,200 feet per second. Right. In that, in that caliber. How many yards do you have? Well, heck, it's so probably only starting out at about, what, 24 to 28? 20, yeah, probably around so 26, you, 25, I think, for me. So what happens is, and this is the challenge, you, know, you, you have to know your bullet and you have to know your limitations. So with a monolithic bullet, to really get it to perform the way you want, you got to know the performance window, the performance envelope where that bullet's going to open effectively, where it's going to open the best. And Barnes has done a great job of addressing some of these issues with things like the triple shock or, and the tips triple shock yep. and other TTSX. bullets where they've added design components to help them open at a lower speed. Having said that, when you look at some, a bullet like a Burger Hybrid and you look at the performance window of that bullet, where it will open clear down into the- 15, 1600 sometimes even. Absolutely. That's where you get a different, it's just a different design parameter. And yeah. so for some guns, if you, if you walk out of the house with a firearm and you know that your maximum velocity is 2,500 feet per second, and you know when you're going to drop below the threshold where, you know, a, a monolithic is going to open right for you, well, then you need to make sure when you're hunting game that you never violate that because you have a responsibility if you're going to be shooting game to shoot game within the windows that your that your cartridge is, is really going to perform right for you. Right. And it can be different on the other side as well. You know, there's, uh, we all have a close personal friend who hunts with a 6'5", 300 Weatherby. 
that that's a that's a that cartridge has got some serious velocity. So if you're using a copper projectile on top of that cartridge, you're really getting you know it's really going to perform the way it was designed to, because the other advantage of a monolithic is they'll tolerate speed, right? They will tolerate being pushed extremely fast. Because they don't and have so, those little thin jackets to potentially fling apart. Well, and they tolerate yeah, it. They tolerate too. If I'm if I'm correctly, they they tolerate impact and game at higher velocity too, because the bullet's not going to blow apart. Yeah, that's right. You know, I the guy I call my like my my ballistic sensei said that you know for your traditional bullet, your sweet spot in velocity, your muzzle velocity, anything above about thirty two hundred feet per second, you start to really you start to really dance on the line of with terminal performance of where you might be pushing it too fast. And again, that's because, you know, physics are what physics are. Once you drive a certain, there's only, you you can't escape physics. And so um, Mm -hmm. with a traditional bullet, you've got to be careful that you're not over, that you're not trying too hard with that traditional bullet because it's designed, it's malleable, designed differently. Whereas once again, if you're driving a bullet at 3,500 feet per second from a 65300 Weatherby, that's lightning in a bottle. You know, that's a, you got a lot going on for you. Now, the trade-off for that is this. If I'm buying my wife a rifle, right? And I'm going to have to buy her a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 6.5 300 Weatherby, which direction am I likely to go? Or maybe the 6.5, the new Weatherby 6.5. How much, how much do you like your wife? <laughs> I, yeah. That's really you, a question to yeah, ask. You, <laughs> you know, there, a lot of the modern cartridges, and this is what I tell people um, when we're talking about this issue, is that a lot of the modern cartridges, one of the challenges that you face Let's just say if everybody were to shoot a monolithic bullet, one of the challenges that you face is the design. And this is really wonky. But a 6.5 Creedmoor, that cartridge, the way that it's designed for these long, skinny bullets, you can drive those at a lower velocity. And because of the magic that we have in technology now, I can get a 6.5 Creedmoor. I can get a really nice Vortex optic for a very reasonable cost. And suddenly, I don't have to drive a bullet at a bajillion miles an hour anymore to be accurate. I can use my rangefinder. I can hit that animal at 300 yards with that rangefinder. I can reach up onto my turret. I can dial four minutes of angle, five minutes of angle, whatever it is, onto the turret of that optic. And suddenly, the disadvantage that I would have been at you know, 20 years ago for not shooting a Magnum just went away. And my hmm. 6.5 Creedmoor at 400 yards with a good optic, I'm now able to deliver better accuracy an equal knockdown power than I would have been able to 20 years ago using a variety of magnums. And that's just because now the the ballistic coefficients are better on the bullets we use. And it's, it's the revolution in optics that has allowed that to happen. And that's, what's really unique from a company like Vortex, really companies like Vortex that have popularized and made available high-end optics at reasonable prices has allowed the every man out there in the hunting community to do more with a more accurate, smaller cartridge than you would have ever been able to do before. Mm-hmm. Now, when I tell people to buy a gun, I tell everybody, you know, I, I really tell a lot of people to buy 6.5 Creedmoors, new hunters. It's just a fantastic cartridge if you know your limitations and you're, and you're working under your limitations and choosing, making the right choices in optics and making the right choices in bullets. In, in bullets. Yeah, so and you can't get, I just three, for a long you can't time. even get 308 ammo anymore. They don't even make it. So, antiquated. Right, right. Yeah, unless you, uh, <laughs> That's part of the muzzleloader season now. Yep. Uh, yep. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, I think uh, uh, guys use that when they uh, 
dress up in period correct clothing oh, and they get I've their three oh eights. Yeah, yeah, it's a handicap. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, this this kind of actually is is making a bit more sense of when we were in the six five revolution podcast. Ryan Muckern was talking at the end how important it is to have bullet selection, proper bullet selection for what you're going to be doing and understanding. You know, if you're going to be shooting something really close up that bullet's going to be impacting game with higher velocity than it would if it were really far away. And so that's where, you know, maybe the monolithic would come into play, or if you're shooting stuff that's going to be a little bit further out where you may have dropped a little velocity at that point, that's where the sort of cup and core stuff would come into play. And it, it really sounds like Nephi and, and other guys too. I mean, feel free to weigh in this on with your opinions as well, but it sounds like both styles have their place. It's not necessarily that the argument is, oh, we should get rid of one and keep the other. Both styles have their place. But I think that some of the confusion or I guess sort of a buzz has been around the fact that one is labeled as toxic and therefore bad, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then one is labeled as sort of non-tox. And therefore, oh, well, why wouldn't you want to use that, you know? And when in reality, that's kind of the, that's the difficulty that we're in. It, it's, yeah, it's it, kind of silly, too. Be, it's it's kind of silly because it seems like this was never a conversation about rifle ammo until now, suddenly, you're seeing questions that are like, yes. should all ammunition fired on a public property be non-toxic? And it's like, wait, I thought this was about waterfowl hunting (laughs) with non-lead shot, right? Like, that's what it was always about, and now it's all of a sudden this thing where it's like, well, why don't we do all this? It's like, wait, let's take a step back. And um, Nephi, as well, can you, and I hope we get to this point as well, because we're talking about, you know, obviously anytime, we've already said this, anytime somebody hears toxic versus non-toxic, it's almost like saying good versus bad. I'll I'll pick the non-toxic, whatever. But the the toxic aspect of it, or what people are most concerned about, and I remember at first, I thought it seemed natural in my head, you know, okay, I guess if we're spraying lead all over the place, and I guess it's toxic, I don't know, it gets into, like, what, our water supplies or something, or it gets, but then people started bringing up concerns of, oh, your, you know, your your avian predators or whatever, your raptors will come in, and they'll get, uh, they'll pick it up, or when you shoot wild game and then you go in and you harvest the meat and you eat it could it get into your system and so that's where some people mm. started having yep. concerns so during the during the 1980s 70s 80s it's interesting you mentioned putting lead sinkers in your gas tank don't do that anymore don't do that anymore blue um, told me to not again. don't don't do it <laughs> so during that era lead so lead is you know as like any element there are different variations of it there are different ph's and it does different things at different you know at different ph and at different state and the lead that's in your gas tank which was in a liquid form is much different than the lead that was you know than than hard antimony lead and things like that it's, it's more what we call bioavailable so it can be picked up by animals more easily it can be picked up by other things in you know out there more easily so no, Nephi, you're talking there, about back in the day when we had leaded yeah. gasoline, right? Leaded gas, Which, leaded paint was very common. There were a lot of sources of lead in the environment, mm-hmm. um, and this is not that long ago, yeah. right? And so, well, and I think that's important to bring up, and that's one thing that I did want to mention. Like, I don't think anybody at this table is trying to dispute that lead can be 
a toxic substance. Like that's that's why we don't have Absolutely. leaded gas anymore. That's why we Absolutely. don't have leaded paint anymore. That's why my mom probably uh, when I was growing up fishing, she'd say, "Don't bite those split shot sinkers, Mark." And I'd say, "But you did it anyway." I still yes, do it. Yes, <laughs> I did. I did it anyway. And, and we maybe, all did. And maybe we're seeing the repercussions of that today, Jim. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, why our. Yeah, I think you still look pretty good. I appreciate it. But uh, no, so, so I, I don't right. think anybody's like we're trying to argue against. Right, right, that, right. that it can be, right? Because, right. I mean, I think that's a known fact. I think we can accept that as fact. Ruben brought up, you know, uh, the water fouling, kind of the changes yep. in those regulations, which I think started in 1991 as far as, like, kind of, like, a across-the-board change. Full implementation. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to go back in time that we weren't talking about yep. current times. So there are some great yeah. studies out there showing the negative effects of lead uh, on wildlife populations when you go back to that era. And so when you go back to that era, when you had those other things in the environment and – the traditional waterfowl load was what? It was a lead load, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's the same thing. You have to, lead has a high specific density, which means you can deliver a lot of energy at further distance than you can with something else with less punishment to your shoulder and your gun. And so- Yeah, um, and, and like on that point too, like as far as shotgun shells go, lead is going to deform more as it impacts a target, therefore dumping more energy in that target. It's not always just passing straight through like a steel shot would do. Gotcha. Yeah. And you'll see some people with older, with older firearms, if you have an old, like if you have a shotgun your grandfather gave you, you need to take a good hard look at whether or not you should be shooting steel through that shotgun because mm -hmm. it could mm -hmm. destroy the gun. Yep. And so all those things said, the, we, we passed, the regulation was passed by the, you know, internationally, we worked together to make sure uh, that our migratory waterfowl, that we were not using lead to hunt migratory waterfowl. And about that same time, other implementation took place you that's why you don't get leaded gasoline anymore so you're not going to buy paint with lead in it it's just, there was a there's a large scale effort made to take all these different potential sources of lead out of the environment and no one can argue that wildlife benefited from that and so you'll see studies pre-1994 where you can definitely see population level effects of lead where you could test for lead in different animal populations specifically waterfowl and you had negative effects. You had die-outs. You had things that were occurring. After 19, 1994, you can't find those studies anymore. Why? Because the effects don't exist. Hmm. So that's where this gets to be really tricky. Because if you start looking post-1994, and you pull up studies now that are related to lead effects on wildlife, and I'm going to separate these into two kinds of effects. Individual effects and individual toxicity. Let's remember that. And population level impacts. They're different. So population level impact, what we're saying is we can, we can, we can take a hundred animals and we can sample the blood of all of them, or we can sample, you know, we can, these many animals die and we can look at it and we can see that we've definitely got something that is affecting the trajectory of the population, right? After 1994, there are no studies, zero that show that as being a population level impact, that there are any population level impacts associated with the use of lead and ammunition. Now, I do want to say that doesn't mean you're not going to find individual effects. And there's one big giant caveat that I have to say here that doesn't include California condors. Yep. And so this mm. is why it doesn't include California condors. You have like a hundred birds. You had less than that in California. They're an endangered species that eat almost exclusively what? Carry on. Carcasses. Carry on. Yes, that's it. Basically, that is their diet. And if you only have 50 individuals of any type left in the entire world and Joe dies of lead toxicity, 
that's a population level impact. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. you can't avoid that. And so California made the decision, and initially they were trying to do it voluntarily. Um, they're the politics of that state aren't such that they favor voluntary action. But what happened is California ended up rightfully banning the use of lead in the condor area, in areas where condors were going to ingest it. And so we're also, our organization would never argue that that was a bad idea. What we would argue is that there is anything to say that that same effect occurs, you know, in other places and that it's, that it's not unique to condors. And, and let me tell you why. And this is kind of gets into why people argue about lead now. Raptors. So there aren't, you know, nobody's going to be able to argue or show you data that's going to say there are population level negative effects of using lead ammunition on a population of animals. They're not going to find the data. Now, what they are going to be able to say is we found lead toxicity in a certain animal died and we tested it and we found lead or we find a bald eagle someplace and it has lead toxicosis and it's sick. That's a reality. You know, that's not something that we would argue. It's not something that it's, I mean, I, I try and I'm trying to do this respectfully, but if you go to a hospital and you walk in and you find a guy that's got diabetes in the hospital and it's because he, you know, eats a bunch of, you know, Twinkies and Ho-Hos, I'm not going to tell you that eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos doesn't give you diabetes. You know, there, there are these causes that are irrefutable. What is refutable is is that a population level impact are all raptors or is this a, you know, the problem is we take one raptor that has a, you know, has an issue and then we apply the, what we have found and we, and we like, well, we need to save raptors. And we found Joe, the raptor who had lead in his blood. And so therefore all raptors in order to save raptors, we have to take lead, you know, you know, get rid of lead ammunition. It's just the, the ends doesn't justify the means and then the steps along the way for justifying that action. They don't exist. And I'll give you an example. I, I, I think you guys are aware, you know, there are a number of studies out there and there's a study out of Canada that I like. It's a really good one where they looked at the anthrop, like what kills raptors? What is killing raptors mm-hmm. you know, in North America? And if you took that number and you looked at what is killing raptors in North America, about 50% of the deaths are anthropogenic strikes. And this is human caused raptor deaths. You know, so first of all, we have to take away the number one issue, which is habitat loss, Right. Okay. But then let's just get to down to the other one and let's get to, then we're at 50%. We're going to have raptors, raptors hit something, a building, a fence line, a windmill, a car. Um, let's go down the list and we're going to get West Nile. We're going to get, you know, house cats, like everything else. When we get down to the bottom of what's killing raptors, about 3% is toxicity, something poison. They ingested something poison. That's something, you know, lead is going to be one of those things that they could have ingested mm-hmm. in addition to, Anything else in our environment that they could have ingested from the garbage dump or from, you know, the oil or whatever, there are going to be a lot of different things that are going to fall in that category. So, yes, lead can kill birds, but it doesn't kill them in a proportionately higher rate than many other things that mankind does kill birds. And I think that that's where the concern comes in is when you say toxic and non-toxic and we've, you know, this thought that lead is somehow really killing a ton of birds. It's just not the case. And so when you look at, and, and again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care, but that does mean that we need to keep in mind what are the things that, you know, if we're going to spend a whole lot of energy on trying to improve, you know, trying to keep raptors around, which we should be, and trying to keep birds around, where should we be spending our money and effort? And, 
you know, there are some that would argue that this is not that thing, that this is kind of a red herring that people hear and that makes some people feel good, but it's really not. I mean, literally mm-hmm. it is, you know, a change in ammunition type. You will not be able to measure a change in wildlife populations. Like if you, if you started talking about maybe like toxic versus non-toxic windshields, then maybe people would start getting rid of cars on the road or like <laughs> tox versus non-tox windmills. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have a I have a really bad windmill phobia, so you I'm do. fine getting rid of the windmills. Yeah, take yeah, them for sure. Take them down. I saw one explode. Yeah, it's, it's got hit by lightning. Yeah, I no, it's really it. interesting. <laughs> I talked to some hunters, and I will tell you this is this is factual. You can look, you can find this if you look at it. There's no doubt you're exponentially more likely to hit a bird and you know kill it on your way out to hunt with your car by like a hundred times more likely than you are to ever have a potential impact because of the type of bullets that you shot. And I think it's really important to also point this out. When people were calling for this change, and this is the muddy where the water start to get really muddy with something like the survey in Wisconsin, lead shot. Some people say lead shot, and then they'll try and equate that over to lead bullets. And the challenge is this, if you were an elk hunter, or a deer hunter, you got one bullet that you're probably hoping to get to deposit that one bullet in an animal this year. And you may or may not get that opportunity. That's a totally different world than waterfowling where you had, you know, I mean, you guys know the difference, you know, you know how much you shoot in one scenario versus how much you shoot in another. Yeah. Especially if you're shooting with Mark. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And people have kind of painted the case of shells a day. <laughs> yeah, people people have really kind of painted this with the broad brush as if all things are created equal and and they're not. And I think I think our community, uh the sporting community is is actually I think a voluntary approach that says depending on where you're at and what you're hunting and how you hunt, you should choose the right bullet for you is absolutely the right thing to do. And that is where we should be as a community and that is what sportsmen should be doing. The problem is like it it's not something that you should that you should regulate, especially when you probably don't understand the issue. And this is an issue where most of the people that would say like, oh yeah, we should all switch to non-toxic. They probably don't understand all the numbers, you know, behind the scenes and the numbers are deep, but they ought to give sportsmen confidence that like you're, you know, if you're using lead ammunition, you know, you're not the scourge of wildlife. You're not having a negative effect. And, Mm -hmm. and certainly in the other issues, this, and maybe you guys are going to talk about this. You know, there's a human health issue that people worry about. I was, I was going to hope mm. we were going to get into that too. Yeah. And if you want to talk about it first, I'll just tell you there isn't one. And then we can go from there. Marco, what was that thing you were saying earlier? You said it seemed, it, you said there was some study out there where it said, uh, where it said hunters that were tested for lead, I guess, content versus non hunters or whatever, they had a slightly higher, or, or if you looked at it, if you looked at it in a bubble, you would say, oh my gosh, they have like double the amount of lead as like a regular person who doesn't hunt. But then if you actually looked at it in terms of like what's actually dangerous, they were still far from the threshold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah, well, the way I understood that, it was exactly exactly how you how you put it. And I can tell you too, I mean, we, we have the, the indoor range here, right? So yeah. what do you see when you go down to the indoor range? All the D-lead wipes, right? That you wipe your hands off after you're done shooting. It should come as no surprise to anyone. If you're a hunter and you shoot and you practice and you clean your gun, guess what? 
You didn't, you didn't get lead. You didn't get the lead you. in your system from eating the stuff you shot. I was you got thinking, it on your, in your system from cleaning your guns and from shooting them and breathing in the. I was thinking the same thing because I thought, ionized lead that that yeah, basically I, so that's what it's I not very fair under, under the gun exploding. Exactly, it's not very fair to to say that it all came from the meat because for that exact reason. No, yeah, I mean I've had my le- I've had my lead levels tested. I mean, look at a guy like Josh Fralick who does competitive shooting. Um, getting ready for the world shotgun shoot, he went to the doctor and they were like, yeah, you have too much lead in your system. If it stays this way for years, you'll probably have some issues. But it was for a couple months and he practiced some some safer practices like always washing his hands after he was done. Yeah. And to put that into context, he shot around 90,000 rounds of shotgun, which is a lot of pallets of shotgun. Uh, it's like a in, week of duck in, hunting. In a, in a few it's short like months. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Yeah, you wonder why Federal is in business. It's because Mark and Josh Fralick. Um, but, yeah, so put that into context, that's a few months shooting, like, I shouldn't say 90,000, but it, it was tens of thousands of rounds of shotgun yeah. to prepare for this world shotgun shoot back in 2000 and, uh, I believe, 18. And it's it's just crazy to think that, like, you know, you can take that number and say, well, this guy had, he's a hunter, and he has twice as much lead in his system as the next guy. And even w- when that number isn't dangerous, then why are we even talking about it? Well, mm. let me ask you this. Did he win? He did. Okay, totally worth it. Um, <laughs> but, no, so that, those are some big things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about, I guess, you know, essentially what has to happen to lead for it to be dangerous in your sure. system. You brought up ionized lead. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right term. No, I think it I is. I think it is. I think it is. And then also kind of circling back a little bit to how that lead becomes ionized and maybe some of the differences between like uh, a mammal's system, like, you know, us us folks yep. as well as, you know, other, other uh, predators that we share the landscape with. And then the raptors as well, from which I understand like maybe even particularly Nephi in, the, in that California, California condor scenario, like, super acidic digestive tract. That's right. Where and, we and, uh, maybe not, not as much. I mean, definitely some, but not as yeah. much. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to be a really good biologist, although I was, uh, you know, the, my uh, my USDA classification would say that I was. Yeah. But the, uh, but, Big brain but yeah, here. there are different, you know, there are different systems and birds tend to have a more acidic system, especially raptors. And, and then if your job is to be a large raptor that eats dead things and turns them into calories, right? You're going to have the acidic system. And so, yeah, it's, it's the breakdown of lead. So it's not that lead bullet. That's the problem. Um, that's it's, it is the, it's when it starts to, it's smaller components, it's different ionizations. And I can't talk about all of them, but I can tell you is that as a shooter, everybody should be practicing best management practices in this day of COVID-19, please. If you weren't washing your hands before, you should be washing them now. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of things that you can pick up on your hands that are actually probably more dangerous to you as an individual than yeah. residue from your cartridges. Wash your hands. Yeah. I mean, um, I know some some people, some people they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't wash my hands when I go to the bathroom because, you know, like it's not, it's not uh, uh, whatever poisonous or I can't, that's not the right word to me. And it's kind of like, okay, cool. Yeah. Be, uh, oh, well, I, it's just some, some, you know. Ruben? 
I got, in a bad crowd. I got in a bad crowd in college. No, but... <laughs> it's not me. But some people say that stuff, and then it's like, okay, even if you're not concerned about your own germs and whatever, you know, it's just like, when you go... You can't dispute, like we said earlier, lead. I mean, you can't... If it's all over your hands, and then I always wash my hands after I'm done the range, before I go to the bathroom and then after, you know, but if it's all your hands, then you start eating, and then you're ingest. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so you have the cartridge exploding, right, in the chamber, and, like... 40 to 60,000 PSI of pressure and extreme heat, some of that lead is going to get turned into smoke. It's just... Yeah, it's interesting. There's some studies out of Italy that talk about, you know, the same thing we talk about. uh, It's it's hunters and increased blood lead. And you did see, you can find the studies that, and they, again, it's not at a level that's alarming, but you saw higher blood lead, even though they didn't eat the game. So even though people hadn't eaten any, like, hmm. these are guys who shoot birds and then don't eat them. Oh, Having interesting. Seen, and when you started looking at the other factors, places they could get lead, it's, it, it'd blow your mind. And some of them are like, if you, if you drink, a, if you have like some old crystal and you like to drink alcohol out of it, you're getting lead from that. If you have, and oh. the other, if you smoke, right, you're getting lead from that. Oh, um, yeah. If there are these other things that are confounding factors that make it very, you know, it's, it's interesting and they make it difficult. But the other thing, I would say is when you're shooting, you shoot in, shoot in a well-ventilated area. And that's why if you have an indoor range, it's important that an indoor range, if you're building one in your home or if you're going to, if you own one, it's important that it have the right type of ventilation so that it pulls uh, particulates away from the shooters down range. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that our five-star ranges, we all, you know, they all have that because that makes sure that you don't have particulates in the atmosphere that you're breathing in because you're much more likely, again, not to the human digestion system to get elk to, to get to get let in. That's not where these people are getting it. They're getting it in a respiratory fashion because that's where it's it's small particulates. It's much more easily absorbed and things like that. And so that is also why when you go to a someplace like Federal that mm-hmm. makes ammunition, why everybody's getting tested all the time. And so mm-hmm. if you want to know, is it you know is it an issue? Everybody at federal, their OSHA regulations, they're, you know, they're like all the best practices, you know, they have, it is not an issue at federal. Now I, I do know anecdotally, I know some people who have had indoor shooting ranges who just shot uh, just a ton of ammo indoors and never cared to do the stuff right where they, you know, they never, well, guess what? They got their blood lead tested and it was higher than recommended. And when I say that higher than recommended, if you get 10 micrograms of lead Per, per deciliter in your blood, they're going to consider that, you know, it, with Jeff, they're going to flag it for him. And they're going to say, you should have lower lead than that in your blood. OSHA's number is 80, right? Oh. And so that should give you an idea about the difference. You talked about a study out of North Dakota that talked about hunters and non-hunters and blood lead. That study, the difference in the populations, I, I believe everybody in that study that I know that the median was like three, you know, that was the, so if 10 is your, your area of being worried, three is like everybody's average. If you have less than 10 and you get your, you know, no matter who it is in the population and somebody tests your blood, they're either a not going to be able to tell or B they're not going to worry about it. And in order to define the differences between the hunting and the non-hunting population, the game consumers and non-game populations in that North Dakota study, they had to use a higher level of detection than you can get at a standard lab. Mm. What does that mean? That means that if you were to go to a standard lab, a bunch of us, we all walk in together and they test our blood. The difference, they're not going to be able to tell the difference because 
the, the so machine, small. That, the difference is so small, they can't detect the difference because it's below the level of detection. They have to increase the level of detection to be able to verifiably say, yeah, we think that these guys who ate game meat, they actually did have more blood lead. But yeah. it, in order to figure that out, like you had to go searching for that because it wasn't at a level that, that is concerning. To me, that's the take home for people as they're, you know, if you're a hunter and you're worried if you were, you know, you shoot something with a, with a, a standard, you know, traditional cup core bullet, that's your go-to. You feel more comfortable with that. You know, there's, you know, there's some people out there that would have you believe that you're endangering your family or something. It's simply not the case. Mm. It's just not even true. Now, if it makes you feel better, as a person, and this is where personal decision comes in. If that, like, if that level, like if that makes you feel good inside to know that that's what you're doing and you want to use an alternative bullet because of that, do that. You know? Yeah. The, like I, I've even gone to, um, and like, this is total personal choice, but over the last couple of years, you know, we've had, we've had three kids over the last four years and we eat a lot of venison. I mean, a lot of wild game. And I've gone to kind of doing like the fall doe hunt with a rifle and I've, I've shot the monolithics, I've shot GMXs mm-hmm. and, and it's not for the reason that one is, you know, quote toxic and one is not toxic. The, the reason that I've done that is because the, the bonded or the monolithic bullets, like Nephi was saying before, they tend to maintain their, their mass. They don't lose as much of the bullet in that process of expanding and dumping energy in the animal. And the only reason that, I've gone to that for my quote unquote meat hunt is because there's no bullet fragments left in the meat and you and, don't have, and, yeah. and I don't have to worry about my three-year-old chewing through a piece of venison steak and coming breaking who's way smaller than you. And yeah, has, exactly. You know, way, and, and plus you're in Wisconsin. So your furthest yep. shot is going to be I've not, never, not outside the limits of what that monolithic. Well, yeah. And, and like it's energy right? to give you an example though, like I have hunted, uh, in a place local to here and I can get out to 500 or 600 yards and out of a 308, out of a 308. No, I know, it's, I know you're <laughs> an elitist from the West and you think we couldn't have that here, but, um, <laughs> out of a 308, like, and this particular one is under a 20 inch barrel. I think it's 18 inch barrel. Um, I'm like capped at 480 or something. Like that bullet doesn't have enough velocity to have proper expansion at about 480 yards. Compare that to uh, another cartridge I hunt a lot with a 6.5 PRC with a standard cup core bullet. I'm 2,000 yards. <laughs> 2,000. <laughs> I know it's a 6.5, but it's not that magical. Uh, but no, like <laughs> adequate energy to to have expansion well beyond 700. Yeah. 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 I'm the same way. I have a couple of different guns. I've got a 300 blackout for river bottoms and, uh, the, you know, cause you can hunt river bottoms in Montana. If you don't know this and you live in Montana with a, with a pistol, 300 blackout pistols, pretty magical. So you can get a 300 blackout pistol and you can run 125 grain monolithic and it's phenomenal. And you're not going to shoot very far out there. You're going to be like, it's, it's going to work great for what you're trying to do. You need to have a bolt that holds together. Well, if you're going after bigger game, and so when you're shooting a cartridge like that, man, it's, it is amazing. And then I have, you know, a six, five Creedmoor. I'm shooting primarily traditional bullets, um, Hornady's. And then I've got a, you know, same thing with a six millimeter Then I've got a seven millimeter rem mag I use for elk. And depending on where I'm hunting, I'll, I've got, I'll run 180 grain tipped triple shock. Mm-hmm. I'll run 168 grain, uh, burger. 
And it just depends on where I'm going to be hunting, how I'm going to be hunting with that gun at the time, what the game is. And, you know, I, and, and I think that that's, you know, it, it's great to have options. We have more options now than we've ever had before. And as long as you understand your options and the limitations of each, like you really can't go wrong. There's, you're, I mean, we are winners today. Like sometimes if people say we're in the, the, the good old days of wildlife populations, we are definitely in the good old days of cartridge choices for sure. Mm. Oh man, the cartridges and technology are, I mean, it, it's off the charts well, right yeah. now. And I, all I was going to say when you and I were kind of stepping on each other there uh, was exactly the same thing. I mean, the, it's situational and, and game specific and, you know, certain landscapes or scenarios may be better suited for, for one type versus the other. I shoot those 165 GMXs out of my 300 mm-hmm. short meg and they're pretty is that magical. A, is or, that a wisdom? Is that what they refer to as a wisdom? Uh, yeah, wisdom, some wisdom. people will call it a wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. Not Texas. Uh, right, uh, not Texas. Yeah, but, you know, conversely, right now. I've shot I've shot a lot of bullets out of that gun. They've performed famously. I've shot mm-hmm. Acubons out of that. Uh, I've shot uh, Swift Scirocco's out of it. And, you mean and, Volkswagen? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, which are, you know, I mean, those are, you know, bonded bullets still, like, you know, I guess, you know, more of a traditional cup and core, but, you know, it's it's a bonded bullet built to, or, built to, to drive yeah. and stay together and yeah, high like weight a, retention. Like and, an interlock or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and they all, they all do great, but you just, I end up picking one depending on what I'm going to be likely oh, to encounter dude sometimes i wish i had one rifle and one ammo on the shelf because usually i spend more time deciding oh, what yet. to bring out with me than i actually do hunting yeah well and, and, and you can go and it's like there's not a magic bullet though like you know six five creedmoor i think we all have one or two of them right mm-hmm. and it's a cool cartridge because it's super versatile it's gentle you, you can get these high bc bullets that are designed to work really well at longer distances but i guess in a couple anecdotal experiences of mine where you're in a scenario where you may encounter a deer at 20 yards or you might get a shot at 600 yards or possibly even beyond at those closer distances you kind of, I feel like you make some compromises yeah. as yeah. far as like I mean does the animal die yeah but then you know you are getting a in my opinion a little bit more the bullets likely to come apart more mm-hmm. I want to bring up one thing that a lot of people probably don't really think about and maybe maybe you do when you're at the store but you know the quote-unquote non-tox whether it be in a shotgun load or a pistol load or a rifle load is typically a lot more expensive yep you know yes. and that's i yeah. think one of the things that can be really devastating to all of the talks about potential uh stuff that can happen like aside one of the really devastating things is just the cost you know, to participate in outdoors if decisions are made based on based on just a, a knee-jerk reaction because something felt right versus, like, actually looking at the science behind it, there are some really, really negative implications that can happen both to people's ability to afford to participate in the outdoors and in contributions to conservation through mm-hmm. Pittman-Robertson dollars because of that decreased... You know, yep. contribution. Not only that, you're adding on another uh, layer of rules and regulations, which uh, it's another layer of complexity, which, I mean, yeah. I think we've all looked at our ours or, or you know, other states' regulations books yeah. that, you know, are about, appear to be about as thick as a phone book. And, yeah. and sit down uh, and take a week. It's another, it's another barrier to overcome to be involved. 
Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought those those points up. I mean, they're important. And we know in the industry, we know exactly how important they are. And so everybody understands, you know, even with your premium bullets, somebody might say, well, if I take a premium monolithic bullet and a premium traditional bullet, the costs aren't that much difference. What I will tell you is that the margin is hugely different. So the company that's putting together those bullets, they're actually subsidizing the the, the copper bullets with their traditional bullet lines because it's significantly more expensive to do the copper. Why? Well, because traditional bullets are made out of you know recycled lead batteries, and and copper bullets are made out of virgin copper, and so oh, okay, and so you're looking at a, a a price difference significant in those two in those two things. The other thing to, to know is this. When the price of oil goes up, what drives the price of oil? It's not the first barrel of oil that's pumped. It's the last barrel of oil that's pumped. This is what drives the price. The reality is, and a lot of people are like, well, why don't we all just switch? The reality is you cannot meet the demand. There is no other, you know, copper's expensive yeah. and there isn't a lot of it. Or else people and wouldn't if you rob were to ask, new houses for it. Yeah. And when, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. what do you hear about some of the mine projects that are like, that's what they're going after is copper. So and they're yes, starting they to get into, the they want to mine in the boundary waters. They want the pebble mine, right? Like all these things, they're going after copper and precious metals. Right. And I think you can't, you can't have, at least in this scenario, I feel like you can't have your cake and eat it too. Because like, and I don't, I don't want anything I say to come off as I'm anti-mining because I'm, I'm not anti-mining. Right. But I do. You're anti-bad mining. Anti-bad. Yeah. Only the bad (laughs) mining. Yeah. Same here. Exactly. But you know, then I'm anti-bad everything. But I think as uh, a sports people uh, as people who enjoy the outdoors and and participating activities like hunting and fishing and or even you know hiking or whatever if you if you enjoy outdoor spaces which i think in general if you're a human being you do right Mm -hmm. you want to practice behaviors or whatever that that promote the sustainable use of these resources i feel like there's certain places where it's too too risky to maybe have a mine. Well, have, the thing have, to I, do, have, okay. I, have I gone to, have I gone maybe, and maybe I have gone too far. I think this is a whole nother You should listen to the actually. Your Mountain podcast it's available on iTunes. They talk about the pebble mine on that podcast. It's very good. It's an excellent episode. Okay. I heard about a guy that uh, has something to do with that. Yeah. I heard, I heard I, about I it. I think uh, <laughs> that's Nephi's podcast. Go check it out. <laughs> not affiliated with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, but. Correct. Um, so no, I get, it's a. No, it's not, but it's a heck of a podcast. It so. is. I'm trying to I'm trying to organize my thoughts here, and not and not just to be careful with them, but to I guess to convey what I'm feeling. But like, you want to be like, well, here, I I'll, I'll help you out. Nobody hold Mark's feet to the fire based on anything he says in the next sixty seconds. I'm somewhat speaking off the cuff, but I feel like you might get a person that says, "No more lead ammunition, all copper," and then out of the other side of their mouth, "Don't mind the copper." No more copper. My- <laughs> Yeah. Guess what? And, I guess that's and so I'm and like it's it's uh you're you're stuck. It is when you start uncertainty. That's when you start robbing robbing new house developments. Oh, Your Prius okay. has a that's lot of lead batteries in it because that copper wasn't. Well, <laughs> I, I will tell you that in terms of you know the impact of ammunition manufacturing on uh, sportsmen's dollars and on conservation is this. Then you know if you want to know like who cares about conservation. Like, ask who's paying for it. The number one Pittman and Robertson payer, individual payer in yep. the United States of America's federal premium ammunition. I have yes, paid, no uh, doubt. I think $400 million over the last 
I think it was eight years that they've paid oh, in the yeah. PR dollars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. And those guys at Federal Premium Ammunition, if you, you know, they they would not want me to give out exactly how much, but I can tell you that the lion's share of what they produce is traditional ammunition by a long shot. We have looked at also, you know, states where, so California is the only state that's mandated that folks cannot use for hunting any type of traditional ammunition. So it has to all be um, alternative ammunition, has to all be kind of the, you know, whether it's steel or bismuth or copper, it has to be something else. And that's just for uh, hunting, right? Not recreational shooting. There are those who are trying to expand that. And so, and, mm-hmm. and this plays into the politics of it. But yes, for right now, it's just hunting. That's not where it's stopping. And so what they've, you know, that requirement, um, California is seeing exponential declines in hunters. And it's not, and in hunters in California, maybe I should say it that way. Because if you're in Wisconsin, you know that those boys in California love to hunt. Mm-hmm. And you know, but they're doing their hunting in Wisconsin. They're doing it in Montana. They're doing it in Idaho. They're doing it someplace else. In California's, their Department of Natural Resources is literally in a crisis state where they have, I've heard their director talk about it, where they're, they're, they're lamenting the loss of hunters in California. The conservation organizations in California are lamenting the loss of hunters in California because of the amount of money that they spend on conservation. Mm-hmm. But I've always wanted to hunt you, California. It's such a cool, like physical, it's a cool place. place. Physical location and the, the, the scenery is the, unre- the unbelievable. The land yep. is amazing. Yeah, but it's it's been very difficult there, and they and the declines. They can't say whether the declines are the regulations now. It's buying ammunition in California is like buying a gun in California. There, you have to go through a background check. There's a special system. Got to use a special ID. All these things play into it. And so you're not going to be able to tell whether people, is it because our hunters not hunting anymore just because it's a pain in the butt to buy ammunition in general, or because it's more expensive to buy the only ammunition there that you can buy in legal use for hunting. It's tough to say whether we'll be ever be able to tease it out. But both of those things certainly play into the decline of hunting and hunter opportunity in the state of California. And as coming from my, like, at least from my experiences, like one of the biggest reasons that I got into competitive shooting was to make me a better all around outdoorsman and like a better marksman. And I can tell you that I've become a better hunter because I'm a better marksman. And yeah, like Nephi mentioned before, the cost between like a box of traditional premium ammunition and a cost of, you know, like a a GMX bullet or something like that, uh, a quote, non-tox, it might not be that big of a difference. It might be a $57 box of ammo for your seven mag versus a $67 box of ammo. But the practicing, like I'm not necessarily practicing with the same expensive stuff that I take out and hunt with. Now, when I'm zeroing and getting data, yeah, absolutely, I'm using what I hunt with. But spending time on the range, like looking at that first question on the survey this year was like, do you support only using, like mandating the use of non-tox for anything on public land other than designated shooting ranges and it was nice that they put that in there yeah yeah exactly like is that is that the last time that's ever going to be addressed yeah i doubt it. well i would ask you if you don't know and you you know if we hadn't had the discussion before if you or if you weren't around people that knew what you're talking about and you answered that question i mean how would you logically how would you answer that question well, yeah. Does it even occur to you that when somebody's talking about toxic ammunition that they're talking about, they're implying that a $7 box of 223 that you bought at, you know, at Shields 
they're implying that that is, you know, did you know that they're saying that that's toxic? Right. Because I think a lot of people, yeah. I think a lot of people use that ammo and they might even say, they might even get that question. Say, do you, do you support requiring the use of non-toxic or whatever? And they would of say, course. yes, of course I do. And they don't, they don't even realize that the ammo, yeah. the ammunition mm-hmm. that the they everything that use they have at home is, is considered toxic. Quote, ammunition. Toxic. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. And that's where, yeah. and that's, Across the board, that's 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 the case. You yeah, know, if you've absolutely. got a twenty-two, you if you have a twenty-two rimfire, guess what? The whole little thing is toxic, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't even have a jacket. Does <laughs> yeah, it? you're might as well. You're not, have a Mister. You're not. Skull and there aren't monolithic. <laughs> there aren't monolithic twenty-two long rifles out there. You know, in general, you're not going to find an alternative. Yeah, and again, that's because. Look at the cartridge. I saw some at shot show that cartridge. some a company is trying to develop uh, for the Precision twenty-two game. And God bless them. It cost these. <laughs> It costs like the same as a box of premium match centerfire rifle. Oh, wow. That's unreal. Yeah. Well, Nephi, do you know like the difference between like the cost of, let's say, a a pound of lead versus like a pound of copper? No, I have no idea. It's, we could look it up online. I heard, I wish I knew. It's got to be. It's, it's huge. I got to be. I feel like I was reading or listening to something and it might've even been something that you guys did, but like, God, now don't quote me. Look it up. But I feel like it was almost like sub $1 and then like four versus four Well, or $5. and the other thing too is due to the density of lead. Maybe it wasn't even a pound. No, Never mind, everybody. It, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and Now I'm enthralled. Like what you're about to get at, one pound of lead probably looks like that versus yeah, it's, one it's, pound of copper looks the, a lot the, bigger. The material needed to get a pound of lead versus a pound of copper. Sure, just due to density. It, yes, it's going to be much less material, right? Yeah. So your copper-jacketed bullet that Hornady is stamping out of a roll of copper, making the jacket through an extrusion process, and then dropping a lead ingot that looks like a pencil eraser, except about three times as long, into that jacket and then crimping it, running it through a die and, and sealing it up, that amount of lead to make up the weight of your bullet is much less than the amount of physical space that a, that same amount of copper, brass, or mm-hmm. bronze would take so up. So this is why the, uh, quote, non-tox bullets are usually a smaller or a lighter grain weight. Isn't well, it? yeah, and well, not so to get into... I said that to get pretty long, too. I'm not, I'm wow. not a, I'm not a yeah, bona fide ballistician, but I can tell you that if you look at, like, a copper bullet, call it a... Uh, a GMX or a TAC TX, something like that, something that you could get to shoot accurately, um, a G7 profile bullet, a match bullet, whatever. You you would look at, like, just speaking in terms of, like, a 6.5 Creedmoor, because we've been doing that all episode, a 140-grain ELD match is a traditional bullet that we all shoot. It's yes. what we buy in bulk for our range. We're, we're all familiar with it. You guys shoot the Vortex Extreme with that bullet. Looking then at uh, the TTSX, Typically, the same length bullet is probably about 120 grain. Right, right. Okay, mm-hmm. so now what, what problem exists is we're going to a bullet that is a lower mass, and it's not going to carry its energy as efficiently as something that is the same size but a higher mass. Yeah. So whether that be the gyroscopic stability from the bullet spinning or the bullet's distribution of mass in that bullet – if we wanted to go to a bullet that was the same weight or the same um, overall mass, mm-hmm. we would now have to either make the profile of that bullet more rounded towards the front, which is going to make it less stable yeah. because now we're not getting that same ogive shape. Mm-hmm. The, the bullet that's lead, that's 
going to have its center of mass further rearward is going to be more stable, uh, or a, a cup and core bullet, um, is going to be more stable. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happens is Nephi mentioned SAMI. So SAMI is setting those chamber dimensions for cartridges. It's what we take a wildcat cartridge and they test it for pressure, all of the dimensions, and then they put their stamp of approval on it. That's a SAMI uh, approved or SAMI specified chambering. And then companies make ammo for that. Now let's take a bullet and say that SAMI specification is set so that you can run a certain range of bullets in that case, and that certain amount of powder that you could fill the case up with isn't going to blow your gun up. Now we need to take a bullet that is longer and put it in that same case. We're going to decrease our powder capacity because that yeah. bullet can't be due to SAMI specifications, unless we're hand-loading for match ammo again. Right. This is not and, that. And, and unless you don't care about the fact that it might not fit in a magazine. Right. It might. You might have to hand feed it because it's going to be too long. Well, now we have more of that bullet down in the case, taking up space in the case that could otherwise be occupied by powder propellant. Now we take a bullet that's the same mass as the other bullet, and we're shooting it with either a different type of powder so that we can maintain similar velocities or something like that. But typically what's going to happen is you're just losing case capacity. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that bullet isn't going to perform as well in terms of accuracy. Typically, I'm not talking about like the match solid bullets that companies are CNC machining, but I'm talking about like a, a GMX or a TAC mm-hmm. TX. If you look at the performance of them in, in terms of accuracy, in terms of consistency, in terms of uh, optimum velocity, like that, Cup and core bullet is a better bullet mm-hmm. for shooting. And the whole point, and with those monolithic style, they have to be going pretty fast for them to be able to expand, yeah. too. So yep. then if you're eating up powder capacity, it's kind well, of, I think, it gets a little bit weird. I think you go back into better for some instances. Yeah. Better, yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I exactly. think all of us at this table use, you know, monolithic bullets and, Got a you lot know, of and right. as well as, you know, traditional cup and core bullets that are lead bullets, right? Bullets that have, have lead. And I the think, I think you do see that kind of across the board. Like, you know, I'll take God, I beat it to death, but it's just because I'm familiar with it. So you look up, you take, you look at that, my 300 short, that you, you don't, it, there's a lot of 180 and 200 grain options, mm-hmm. right? But at least in the uh, Hornady line, like the GMX only goes up to 165, which the GMX is, you know, monolithic, copper bolt, killed a bunch of deer with it. It's performed amazingly, right? But you're only, as far as I know, you're only, they only load it up to that 165 grain. You yep. know? And I think is that due, it's is probably that because of what you're saying, Ruben? Highly in part because of, you don't want to have, I'm an amateur hand loader at best. I handled tens of thousands of pistol rounds, but for rifle, I don't load as many as a lot of guys like Ryan or Scott Parks or Nick Offenberg. Those guys load a lot of rifle, but there's a point where you don't want to have more of that bullet hidden inside of the case than you want to have out front. Yeah, especially um, in a short mag, you're going to start having the bullet resting up against the uh, primer there. In yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> but the no, that, news, it's probably a big reason, yeah. The, okay. the good news is, is, is this, and it's something to remember when you're talking about these different bullets. Like the, the exciting part is because monolithic bullets do hold together very well and they perform better at speed, it makes a lot of sense to step down in a bullet size. Mm-hmm. And that's why you can go from a 180 to a 165 because then you're driving that bullet faster. And, and the other thing is, as you said, the bearing surface of the bullet, because the material is just, you need more material to fill the same space. There's the difference in density between those two, th- between the lead, and, between the traditional bullet 
and the monolithic, it, it, the bullet's just bigger. And so you use the smaller bullet, you can drive it faster. And the, the what you're going to give up is, remember, what you're going to give up is ballistic coefficient. That's what you're going to give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll actually and, even, and, you'll even notice too, not to interject, but you'll even notice when you go buy a box of monolithic bullets and a box of typical cup core bullets, that monolithic bullet is typically going to have somewhat of a ring or a series of rings mm-hmm. around the outside of the bullet that are going to help seal in the pressure behind it so that it can actually move down the barrel versus a traditional bullet that's going to, like Nephi mentioned before, under those extreme pressures and heat driven by the propellant, that bullet is going to conform to obturate. your bullet. And that's another... Shout out Luke at Arrowhead Rifles. There you go, yeah. I've said obturate so many times since his podcast. Everything's obturation and these days. Obturate. That's another... That ball bearing that's actually another right. reason, too, why... And not to go down this rabbit trail, but that's yeah. another reason why guys talk about validating your BC when you're shooting with, you know, using a ballistic uh, calculator, stuff like that, validating BC, because every barrel is different so you're imparting those grooves onto the onto the bullet and okay. that changes the bc yeah and that's dependent upon the barrel and, and remember when you take these things out to shoot just just know your limitations and shoot your gun and see what your gun likes and shoot both and see which one works better for you because the the other reality is you got a little bit into it ruben but with different different cartridge designs over time the paradigm of how cartridge design cartridges are designed has changed and so a 6.5 Creedmoor that's a long, skinny bullet with steep shoulders, it was just designed in a different time than a 260 Remington or than a 243 or, you know, a 300 Weatherby. And when you look at the, when you look at that, realize that when they designed that cartridge, Sammy also said, okay, if you're going to shoot that cartridge in a rifle, here's the twist that the rifle needs to have. And here are the chamber dimensions in order mm-hmm. to keep everything safe. And so, that's one of the other challenges as you choose these different bullets is why you can't just, you know, you can't just like, well, yeah, I'm going to throw whatever in a, into a cartridge and it'll work in order to really make, you know, my seven millimeter rem mag is a one eight twist. And there's a reason I wanted that versus some of your more traditional seven rem mags from, you know, if you didn't get one built just the way you wanted it, it probably has a much slower twist barrel than that. Probably at least well, a 10, if not, if not slower. Yeah. My gun will stabilize 180 grain triple shock. Why? Because I wanted a gun that was, I wanted to be able to shoot, if I needed to shoot a monolithic for different types of game, I wanted to have a gun that would stabilize the highest BC monolithic that was available as a hunting bullet on the market. I designed the gun for that. And realize that your guns are going to be that way too. There are going to be certain guns that were designed where the guy sat down and designed the gun. He designed it for a certain use and he designed it around a certain you know, paradigm in terms of the bullet used. When you shoot those light, those, those lighter for caliber monolithics, they typically match up better with the design of a, of a rifle than it would if you shot, you know, if you just said, I'm just going to swap out a 180 this for a 180 that. And that's the reason that you need to, you need to consider those things. And we're kind of lucky in that way too, because as you said, you kind of have to step down in size to make up for, you know, to, to kind of make it all a wash, but it really works out great in most instances. And, and again, it depends on your use. If you're in Wisconsin where you can only shoot a hundred yards away, Ruben, then you probably oh don't, you probably don't notice those differences in BC as emphatically 
as you would if you were, say, shooting a long range competition like the Sniper Adventure Challenge, the greatest competition of all time. <laughs> and you had to shoot out to say a thousand yards with regularity. Then you'd, you'd start, you know, you'd start to care about that. What may, what may be a, a very slight difference in performance at 400 yards. Well, you know, maybe, you know, it, it, it can creep up on you. And again, it's just one of those things where, where we would say to people is there's not a right and a wrong answer here. There really isn't. Mm-hmm. There is just an informed answer. It is what is, what is your use and pick the right bullet for your use or depending on the rifle that you have, pick the right choice for your rifle. And exactly. if you don't have the right rifle, go buy a new rifle and then it's always pick good, another always one advice. for that. Yeah. Yes, go buy a new rifle, get a new optic. You guys have got optic. I'm sure you've got a couple. I see a bunch of them on the shelf behind you there. So mm. I'm sure you've got a few rolling around there. Correct. We support um, the Second Amendment. Go buy more guns. Hey. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really it's funny because like my wife gives me such a hard time. It's almost like the shoes thing. We're like, oh, how many, how many shoes do you need? The more you get into ballistics, into different kind of hunting, the more you realize that there actually are limitations to the 30 out six. And uh, it, while it's Whoa. a great card, Whoa. <laughs> while it may be a great card, just cut out there for a second. For eighty percent of everything, there are other alternatives that may make you know that may make more sense in a given situation. So why not get another one? The the thirty out six is the white New Balance tennis shoes of of dads. The Nike Monarch. Yep. So High like, school football. Coach. So like really good, right? <laughs> I don't think you got that reference. Hey, it's really, it's, <laughs> it's, really, it's really good enough. That's all you need. Yeah. It's and really the, all uh, you need. And the old school Browning A-Bolt and 300 Wisdom is the Saucony, whatever Mark always wears. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a regular dad. I'm a cool dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was uh, that was good stuff. I do I do like arriving on the fact. So this clearly, in in many ways, I think was was a we talk about the non tox versus toxic or whatever, and, and the terminology and and sort of in some ways defending, if you will, the uh, you know the lead uh, ammunition out there, or at least um, giving it the proper background information and context. Um, so, but I do like the fact that, uh, that, you know, it is worth reiterating the fact that there is use for both. It's not that, it's not that, oh, non-tox is bad. You know, anything labeled non-tox is bad because it's trying to boot out, you know, lead ammunition. It's not that. It's just the fact that, yeah. you know, people uh, should make sure that they're informed and uh, an understanding of the terminology. Because, yeah, otherwise, otherwise it does seem, I don't know if it's, I'm sure they're using that terminology because it's what's on the, you know, the boxes. I don't even know where the terminology ever started from, but they can seem leading. Yeah. Can I do a last call? Please. Well, please I've got do. like, can I do some? I know we're going so long. You better not steal my one from yesterday. I texted well, you. Do some last calls I've after got, Ruben. You have a monster energy there. Have a monster yeah. energy drink. It'll be good to go. My, my, well, mine aren't last calls. They might be just keep the conversations going, which I know we're like deep into this one. There's say nothing I'd rather do than talk ballistics. What do you, what? Just say what you're going to say. say what you better say, not be what I texted you. It better even, not be Ruben Stein. I don't think I don't, it, I don't think it is, but it I don't know. Be. I don't know what I mean. He's going to steal. I'm not, steal his. I'm like I'm going to steal it like the copper pipes out of your house, Jim. Uh, <laughs> Ship them out to Fed. Yeah, now I don't, I don't even know what. So, oh, this one, helps. So one thing, one thing I was going to say. My donation to the cause. So I feel like I feel like at least a couple of the the takeaways here, at least in this discussion, there's a lot of research out there. I certainly haven't looked at all of it. So, but I feel like. When we're talking about, in general, raptor populations, the studies show 
that lead toxicity or, or even toxins in general aren't a significant population. They don't significantly affect the population as a whole. Am, am, You're right. Am I right? Yes. I'm, and no, and, and not this. discounting it's, that it's a, individuals it's a do are. It's a fact. Now, that doesn't mean, and here's the problem, that doesn't mean it doesn't affect public perception. Right. Because when you have like, you know, Susie from, you know, the 7-Eleven went down and found and finds like, you know, there may only be one bald eagle in the entire world that, you know, gets sick because, you know, and it might be a bajillion years old. But the issue is that affects how people feel about it. Right. And that's part of the thing that like, that's part of discussion that hunters, why we need to be willing to talk about this and understand it. We have to understand that that, 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 that perception is out there and that perception probably is not coming from somebody who likes to hunt and likes to shoot. So that perception of, you know, like, oh my goodness, why, you know, what's wrong with this eagle? If somebody says, well, it must be hunters, they must be the problem with that eagle. That's bad for us. It's bad for hunters and shooters. Right. And so that's why we have to understand the facts and we have to be able to address that. And you can't minimize the fact that that concerns people. And if people, and people care about that and you may care about that, I may care about that. Mm -hmm. And if I'm hunting in an area where I think that that is an issue, if I'm hunting in condor country and I want it like, absolutely, I'm going to be part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. 10,000%, It right? is hard like, to imagine. Again, situation specific. It's, it is situational. And that's the tough part because somebody's going to say, well, oh, if it's a bad deal for condors, how come it's not a bad deal for, well, because it isn't. You know, if I'm on a side of a, a mountain side in the snowy rivers in Wyoming and, you know, elk hunting with a single cartridge that I'm praying that I'm going to get a chance to use, honestly, it's not going to matter what's on top of that cartridge. It's not going to matter whether, you know, the, the bullet type that I choose to employ, you're never going to be able to measure the difference that it makes. Depleted right. so uranium. It is, it's a challenging issue and it's challenging, you know, for how people feel about it. it. It's, it's, it's important. It is hard to imagine in 2020 how public perception of something related to illness could cause a giant chain reaction. I know, but <laughs> no, yeah. unbelievable, right? Happen. I think, I think it's on us though. Something like, out of proportion? Yeah. I think, I think it's on us, like as people who recruit new hunters, right. To help educate new hunters as to what some of the battles that they might you know, some of the challenges and things like this that they might be encountering now as a member of the, the hunting public, right? And I think it's also our responsibility as hunters to know the facts. Like one thing I've always appreciated about talking to Nephi is there's there's not just feelings, like there's facts. He's a very factual person who always has data to back up. And just like, just like it's your responsibility if you want to get a good grade on a test in college or school, like you need to study as hunters, we need to study. And I think one thing we've done really good as hunters and outdoorsmen over the last, call it 10 years, um, as long as I've been paying attention to it, is like the importance of public lands and conservation, right? And access to public lands. I think hunters and outdoorsmen are winning that battle when tasked with knowing about it. Like I'm, I'm getting better at knowing facts about public lands, why it's important. And I think just like that, we need to, to have facts when we're asked about well, you know, you have, have the neighbors over for venison for the first time they want to try it, and they ask if you used non-toxic ammunition. Have a good answer for that and be able to explain using data and using facts and not just feelings yep. so that they don't get turned off to the whole idea of hunting because 
we ate venison and it might have had lead in it. Mm-hmm. Ruben, are you? Was that your thing? You? That was a really good. It was one. a really good was thing. That, was that the thing? I kind of snuck it in, but I have another one. But I'll wait for that. Okay, just check it. <laughs> I just, I don't. I guess I don't really. I didn't, see I where didn't trust. It. I didn't I, trust that you weren't going to steal. It, I so. did. I was. I wasn't even dangerously close to. Why would I take that? Why would I? Why would I do that? I don't know. Maybe because Jim said it was good. I'm offended. Slip out. I'm offended that you would think that I would do that. So, um. Once again, train of thought. Oh, now you don't gone. have it because no, I was going to say no, I said that's right. you no. say. because Ruben said it. So now well, you, gonna, you were, we're talking about facts here. Yeah, we're exactly. talking about there facts here. And so this is one thing that I was going to bring up. So a couple <laughs> buddies of mine, close friends, like I, I respect them to the fullest in really every capacity of life, including them being uh, consummate outdoorsmen, stewards of landscape, and super like educated dudes when it comes to like. Hunting and outdoor-related issues. Right, right. And so we were having this discussion just the other day, and they also, uh, a couple of these guys, have previous connections to uh, to state agencies. And one of their takeaways, or one of their main takeaways while working for that state agency was essentially, like, I, I definitely have positive feeling towards non-lead ammunition, so I, so I don't want to think that I, anybody think that I don't, uh, hopefully, I've made that clear. It's not. But, a, it's not but, either or. But they were very right, right, pro. Right. Like, no, dude, that's the right call. Like, we should like we should definitely move away from ammunition that has lead, and that was via them getting facts and I guess you know science and and stuff that was you know delivered to them you know via their work and some studies, and so anyway that that was something that I found surprising and something that I guess I want to look into more. But I just. It was interesting to me that we had opposing views when I consider, I'd say on 99.9% of other things, we actually agree up pretty much on everything, that, which is why I generally ask their opinion, because I know they're going to agree with me. Right. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, I I, agree there are some great groups out there. The Non-Lead Coalition is a, is a great group who, full of hunters, who guys are, say we'd never tell anybody they have to choose. And those guys are always going to make the choice to shoot you know, a, a non-traditional bullet. And I respect that. The one thing that I would, all, you know, you say they have access to the facts. I mean, here's what I will say, like, final thing to talk about studies. I, I promise you, go, go do the studies. I sat in a room, actually, at the North American uh, Wildlife and Conservation uh, meeting the other day with a whole bunch of directors and made the ask, does anybody have a study post 1994s that shows population level negative impacts associated with the use of lead ammunition? You know what the result of that question is? It's crickets, because there isn't one. Hmm. Not that there isn't somebody to try to study it. There just isn't any results that indicate it. Now, again, now if you say, you know, a study that those guys, you know, if you say Minnesota Department of Natural Resources did a, you know, and you, you'll find these out there now. People are like, oh, the Google effects of lead on birds or something like that. And what you're going to pull up is pick the first study that you pull up and then go to the bibliography. When you go to the bibliography, I want you then to pull up all those studies. Oh my gosh, this is something I need to do more. (laughs) Yeah, what you will see is that they're all the same study. You know, they're all in common. They all come from the same place. They all come from the same group of researchers. They're all from the same time frame. Now we may be regurgitating and doing new papers now that come out and like, hey, here's a paper from 2018 that says the same thing that a paper from you know 2010 said. But guess what? The data is based on. It's all based on the exact same hundred studies that most of them and all of those that show population level impacts are pre-1994. Mm. And so mm. and so I know that I've shared some of this with, with Ruben. So go look at the study. 
challenge me, show me that I'm wrong. I'm not, you know, because it, it pays to, it pays to understand those things. And so having said that, when you look at another study, again, more modern than, you know, so, so after 1994, and you look at the studies that say like, Hey, we've got all these different birds that are impacted by lead that we've tested lead. And when you see those ask your, you know, when you have a study of 250 dead raptors, dead found raptors, so we're not testing live birds, find 250 dead birds. And we can find elevated lead in the bloodstreams of four of them, four of them. And one of them, we can say, we think that lead actually killed that one rather than just having elevated lead. And then the, the result of that study is a statement that, you know, lead adversely impacts wildlife. That's not really fair. You know, I think that the characterization would be accurate. It would be accurate to say, yes, we can measure and find those results. But then what is the substance of the studies? What did they actually say? And I have a lot of, there are a lot of great people in wildlife agencies, including the people that make surveys for wildlife agencies who, who may not have read the bibliography and, and who do have opinions that for them, you know, one dead bird is too many dead birds. And I understand, and I understand that, but as hunters, you know, Good question for you. When you go hunt birds, how many birds do you lose dead lost? Do you know as a hunter? You oh. lose about a fourth of them dead lost. Hmm. So I want you to do the math on that. You know, so if you start talking about as hunters, if we're talking about what impact we have on game, if we're going to draw the line in the sand as hunters, like, oh, we're not, we're not going to have, we're not going to kill anything. There will be no negative impacts associated with a that's a real, it's a real interesting gray area to start talking about. And I think it's important that each of us within ourselves answer those questions and that we come to the conclusion that it's, you know, whether you decide for you, if, if you don't want to drive to the field anymore to hunt because you're worried about whacking birds with your car, I'm going to respect that. That ought to be your decision. I'm not going to, it's not going to be the same as mine. And I think that's the challenge with this issue is you see people who are, who are well-meaning people that have made a decision for themselves, that's great. Just make sure that you leave other hunters and, and shooters the opportunity to make their own choices. You know, if you've hunted long enough, you haven't just lost birds to wounded lost. You've lost big game animals to wounded lost too. And I would bet if you've hunted long enough, that you've seen different bullets perform in a way where you've said, the way I employed this bullet, and I'm one of those people, the way I employed that bullet caused me to lose a big game animal. Okay. Don't tell me what bullet I should be choosing because if that bullet is the same bullet that I've had a bad experience with, that's just not the right choice for me. It might be the right choice for you and how you employ a rifle and how you shoot and where you decide to put a bullet, but that doesn't mean it's the right choice for me. And I'm very, very cognizant of the choices I make. And I always try and pick the one that I think is going to give me a one shot very ethical kill as fast as possible. But please don't tell me that you know more than me how to make that choice because I'm going to put money on the table that you don't. And that's kind of my take home on that. Boom. Gauntlet thrown. I don't know. I've got, I, nothing, I've got nothing to say to that. I mean, that was, that was very well said. Ruben, was that your thing? No, I'm, I'm good. His thing was the thing before the thing. Okay. Wow. No, I think I'm, I mean I will say this Mike's, like as a takeaway has been dropped because I think like I've I can appear to be one-sided on this. I think there's opportunities where alternative ammunition can be more effective. Yeah. If I'm hunting mm-hmm. giant Canadas in November in northern Minnesota or the Dakotas like 
there's a lot of times where some of the quote non talk op talks options for birdshot yield better results. Yep. And I'm not afraid to say that I buy a lot of those in the fall when I'm goose hunting mm-hmm. because they can put birds on the ground better, but let's not use emotion to tell people who can't afford those $4 around shells mm-hmm. that they have to buy those to participate in the outdoors. Yeah. Let's not do that. Yep. Yeah. That's another good point. Yeah. I mean, you look at like a federal TSS for, for turkeys. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Right. Phenomenal. Right. I mean, like super crazy effective stuff, you know I mean? So I think everything yeah. has its place and, and, uh, like you said, but to ma- to mandate it, Possibly based on maybe not sound science, or just really, emotion, or 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 you know based on emotion or fear mm-hmm. or misinformation, is you know maybe not not the best path. I thought to of take. a good marketing thing for a comp- an ammunition company that makes uh, non toxic uh, like TSS or something like that. It's actually more deadly than lead. <laughs> I'll pass that I'm over. A dad, I'm a dad now. I do dad our, jokes. Our close friend, Jay-Z. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, we did good. We went over an hour and a half. We haven't done that in a little bit. We haven't. But I think it, it's an important, it's it a is. super it's important topic. It. It's the one that I've got a lot of questions about. Yes. You know, and uh, Nephi, I appreciate you taking the time to, yeah, to answer yeah. a lot of those questions. Nephi, you learned us real good on that. Uh, I got one. Um, I got. I got one more question, but I'll take it. I'll take it off air. Maybe we'll. Uh, we'll. You know, do it as an extra because it'll probably lead us down like another forty-minute rabbit trail. I think we so should. I'm not going to do that to everybody. Cool. I think because we've told people to do the research. Nephi, is there a place where people can do some of this research, or is it best to just kind of? It's use the old Google. So tube? you can go to NSSF's our homepage, NSSF.org, and there's going to be a bunch of you know talking points and things like that on there, and, and you know you'll have to once again search our page. But the, uh, the challenging part is that when you go, I mean, here's the issue. This is such a polar, like it's such a political issue right now. It's mm-hmm. become a very political issue. When you go do research on it, do your research on it. Go in with eyes wide open to your research. Look at who's doing the research and ask why. Those are going to be important things for you because what you're going to see is that like you can't, you know, we all understand the world that we live in today. Don't just assume that everybody's, telling you everything right up front. Understand that there's spin on a variety of these things and and try and just, you know, be a student and make good decisions. And, you know, you will. And if you're going to buy, um, you know, whatever ammunition, if you're buying ammunition, um, make sure that it, it is, uh, that it works well for you. And um, if you can get some that has my friend, uh, Stephen Ranella on the front of it, and that's your pre- preferred monolithic, do that because I like it when he makes, uh, when, when he, when people support that guy. And if you're, you know, if you're shooting matches with Hornady ELDXs, do that or ELDMs, do that because it's awesome ammo too. But uh, just invest time in learning about not just the issues, but in learning about your gun and learn about the tools and everything like that. It's, you're never going to get bored with this stuff. So just, you know, wade right in. Yeah, I think be, be willing to have your point of view changed or reinforced, but be willing to do what the data shows. And, I mean, I was one of the first people that when I saw uh, tungsten and bismuth and all the, the, you know, the alternative shot shells, like I was big into waterfowling for about 15 years of my life. I was hoping to be proved like right, that I, that they were all marketing, that there was no benefits to them. And I was like, wow, this stuff kills birds fast. Right. And like, 
no marketing oh, involved, right? Like there, there, there are opportunities where that will work better. And there's opportunities where you're paying for stuff you don't need, but be willing to be surprised that, you know, you might learn something in this. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I think that's, I mean, that's my big takeaway. Go, go in with it. Wise open, eyes wide open. Like you said, be, be willing to have maybe your mindset changed. Like Nevi said, you know, check, check your sources, you know, and I even worry about this, like, like this is a Vortex Nation podcast. We're hunters, we're shooters, you know, we're, we're in the firearms industry. Like, I don't want people to think like we're coming at this from like, like a skewed, you know, mm-hmm. perspective where we're trying to put spin on it because I, at least I know, I know, I know we're not trying to put any sort of spin on it. Right. But definitely, you know, encourage everybody to, to really, you know, look, look at the facts there. Yeah. Hey. There's no silver bullet. Oh, that's another. There you go. There's no silver bullet. And and it. also, I'll throw this that. as hunters, <laughs> we care a heck of a lot about these wildlife populations. <laughs> we want them to succeed. Indeed, arguably more and than no, anyone like, else. I know your podcast is going, but like, hey, think about this. Here's something for you to take to take pride in. So, a worldwide study on birds just came out. It was put out put out by Audubon Society. It talked. It was birds in crisis, talking about the crisis that wildlife birds are facing internationally. And how huge that crisis is, which by the way, stray cats are the number one killer of birds that is anthropogenically related. So do your, <laughs> do your best to make sure there aren't stray cats out there. And that by that, I mean, neuter and spay your pets. But besides <laughs> oh, that, that's where you were going with yeah. that. Besides that, I tell you, there are two uh, classes Ryan, of birds. Put my 22 away. <laughs> so birds, birds are going down, you know, globally, you know, the numbers are going down with the exception of two classes. Guess which two? Raptors and waterfowl. That's exactly right. So as hunters, if you want to know things that we're doing, if if we're doing a good job, there's always opportunity for us always to say, what can we do better? But have confidence in this. The things that we are involved in as hunters, we are the solution. We've been the solution. We are doing the right things. And so, you know, don't, uh, you know, have confidence in that and, and, and take that to the bank and uh, again, it's population level, and that doesn't, you know, this this ultimately this argument is, I mean, isn't it about? It's not about that. About whether we're having a detrimental effect on wildlife populations, that's not an argument because we're not. It's about perception, mm-hmm. and so that's a much more difficult, you know, beast to to try and work your way around because you know sometimes people want to have their minds changed, and sometimes they don't, and that's that's the challenge that you face in this one. Yeah, that's the truth. Nephi, uh, plug your podcast again here real quick. Yeah. So not affiliated with the National Shooting Sports Foundation. If you're interested in a bunch of wonky content, go check out the Your Mountain <laughs> podcast. We, I've been doing it for a long time. It's, I used to work as a policy advisor for the governor of Wyoming, along with my good friend Dave Wilms, who is the director of is a Western Conservation for the National Wildlife Federation. And then Mike McGrady, who uh, recently, he's now a VP uh, of legal at a large um, firm uh, that resource extraction group, but he was the deputy attorney general of the state of Wyoming. We've all been doing this podcast together for years now. And it's just the Your Mountain podcast deals with um, policy and natural resource uh, regulations and things like that that affect, affect your land, your water, and your wildlife. You can find it at Your Mountain, uh, it's yourmountain.com or the Your Mountain podcast, any place you find podcasts. And we're coming up on episode number 100 now. It's unbelievable. Nice. It's crazy, man. It's good stuff. Wonky like content it. from some guys that have worked in areas of the world that 
most of us don't even understand at all. So that's yes. that's what you want to go check out. And uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, Nephi, big thanks to you for coming on. And also thanks to everybody, as usual, for listening here on the Vortex Nation podcast. And yeah, shoot out, I don't know, questions, your thoughts on this too. Yeah. We want to hear your guys' thoughts. Not You don't have to just hear ours all the time. So Instagram, you know where to find us. Even if you disagree. Even if you disagree. Yeah. So feel free to make those comments as well. We'll delete them, but uh, feel free to make Immediately. them. Immediately, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. They're always, uh, all, all points of view are, are very welcome. So yeah, thanks guys. Thanks. Nephi, appreciate it. Have a good one. Stay safe out there. Good shooting. <laughs> Bye, everybody. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. Hey, if you were interested in some of the information you heard here, too, but you don't want to go all the way back and listen to the whole thing again just to get out one little nugget of information, check out the link in the description because we'll have this in PDF form with uh, pretty much everything that we've talked about. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released so that way you can go back find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.